0: Welcome to episode 10 of the Life in Bomb City podcast brought to you by the Social and Behavioral Sciences Department at Emerald College. I'm Aaron Favor,
1: And I'm Beth, Dr. Beth Rodriguez.
0: This is, podcast is produced in the Panhandle PBS and FM 90 studios on the Washington Street campus and it's available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, podcast apps, and podcatchers. Today is January the 24th. And we decided to break part three of our opioid trilogy into two different parts. Part one is immediate treatment for overdoses, and part two will be treatment for addiction. We thought that might be a little bit easier for our listeners and a more digestible way to look at the information. So today is part one, and we're sitting here with Bill Heiser of Randall County Fire Department. Bill was born right here in Amarillo in 1957. He attended our public schools here in Amarillo, and he's Amarillo College alumni. He is one of the instructors here at Emerald College. Uh, he graduated in 1981, and Bill went to work for Emerald Medical Services in 1986 as a basic EMT, Then he transitioned into the advanced level with uh, the paramedic program, graduated in 1988. He's been doing paramedic work ever since. He went to work for Randall County Fire Department in 2010 after spending 24 years as a paramedic with Amarillo Medical Services. Good morning, Bill. Good morning.
1: We're so happy you're here with us.
0: It's a good morning. Yeah, it's been uh it's been relatively good weather here in Amarillo recently. Yeah, I'm ready for I like warm, I hate cold. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Um so we've essentially been uh been talking uh about uh opioids. We part 1 was uh policy making uh level with Congressman Price. Um we, then we had uh, part two, and that was with law enforcement, where we dealt with the criminal interdiction on the highways. Um, and we want to we learn what you have to teach us about uh, paramedics, what y'all deal with on the streets whenever someone is overdosing. First, first and foremost, the, great, the question that I think a lot of people would like to know or maybe need to know is if somebody's overdosing and they're around you, what what are what are we supposed to be doing to prepare for when you get here?
2: The best thing they can do, uh, if it's a prescription overdose or if it's not, uh, they have Narcan available that you they can get. That's probably the smartest thing to do. Uh, it's a double edged sword too. At the same time, if that patient's been a long term user of opioids, you can put them into withdrawal really really quick, and that's almost as bad as they overdose. I mean, they're sick. Uh, I did that a couple of times in the back end of a truck being very, very judicious with an Narcan that I gave and I gave it IV, but it, it can happen. Uh, another thing is when you give the Narcan, uh, you kind of, they lose that euphoric eye when they wake up and they're not real happy with you. <clears throat> yeah. More wrestling matches than not. Right. So that's some of the things you need to do. Uh, If you don't have it or you don't feel comfortable giving it, put them in like a recovery position in case they decide to throw up, you know, make sure they're still breathing. Uh,
0: Can you explain what a recovery position is?
1: Just about to ask that.
2: It's on their right side and kind of put their head down, uh, bend their right leg over them, and you just kind of hold their head in a down position. That way uh, you don't – they vomit, they're not going to aspirate because that's one of the big things. If somebody is unconscious, eventually – Uh, everything relaxes and then you'd end up vomiting and aspirating. Uh, Hopefully, you know, they catch them before that happens. And then we uh, can take care of them and, you know, reverse the uh, effects of the opioids.
1: Okay. I have a question for you. Um, There is a movie, which most people know called Pulp Fiction. Mm -hmm. And in the movie, they actually have um, um, Uma Thurman, her character, overdoses. And because she snorts heroin and, okay. um, instead of cocaine. And, um, of course, they're, everybody's freaking out. She's not throwing up yet. Um, but they decide to do an adrenaline shot to the heart.
0: And they make this huge scene out of this adrenaline scene. I mean, it's a huge and, scene.
1: And in who? I mean, we see. I see it now in newer movies where they're doing this. And how realistic is that?
2: The only thing I've ever done uh, or did that when I was in paramedic school, and this is a long time ago, uh, we gave intercardiac epi, and that's if the heart stopped because you're working to get it uh, again. Uh, the dangers are uh, you can lacerate coronary arteries. You don't get the drug exactly where it is, uh, and that's not what – it may be great for TV and movies, but in the real life,
1: yeah, you don't ever want to have to do it. And that's that's the point. It's like a lot of times, you know, we see it on the shows, we see it in the movies, and it's maybe people try to do that, and actually makes everything worse.
0: Sure. Right, and that's a Quentin Tarantino film. Yes. It's, <laughs> a, it <laughs> is. It is a great film, but Quentin Tarantino is notorious and famous for uh, these high impact, kind of funny, but also violent and sure, kind yeah. of weird scenes. And that was definitely one of them. Uh, Who is that? Who's the playing that uh, role? The other role that he actually has to.
1: John Travolta. John
0: Travolta. Yes. <laughs> Nobody knows. He's like, where? how do I know where the heart is? And and it's this big scene, but it's good to know that that is obviously not good no. practice in real life. No, so,
1: you know, there's always, um, like we have steps to follow for stroke. There's steps to follow, you know, if you're seeing it. Heart attack. And um, because overdose is such a big deal, because we were talking about the numbers, which I want you to share in a minute. But um, maybe if we had steps for people Who could, I don't know, prepare before you get there, like making sure they're on their side. Make
2: sure they're on their side. Uh, Make sure they're still breathing. Mm -hmm. I mean, if a lot of times uh, opioids are really, really good about slowing everything down horribly. Uh, I've had patients with balls of 30 or 40 when we'd get there breathing two to four times a minute. And that's really not compatible with life. They're in a happy place. We're not in a happy place when we walk in, so we need to make sure they're breathing. Uh, I've had, I've had uh, people on the scene do rescue breathing before the fire department got there because you'll see fire before we, the ambulance will get there. Um, make sure they don't throw up. Uh, try to make sure that you know what they've taken because uh, a lot of times uh, patients take multiple things. Uh, it's called polypharmacy or Uh, poly drug abuse and we might be able to fix one which Narcan works great on opioids but if they're on like uh, benzodiazepines Valium and the sorts it doesn't work and therein lies a lot of the problems where we have patients that we give the Narcan to and it's like okay there's something else else. so and we don't carry the uh, the reversal agent for uh, benzo's mm-hmm. You don't. You, you didn't see it that much. Some services are starting to carry it.
0: So fascinating. We have and um, use the word fascinating on purpose. It's. I think that, uh, to some degree, <sighs> there's a lot of people that think that this can't happen to them. That they're not going to be in this situation. That this will not happen to a family member. That this won't happen to a relative. Uh, and that is not, that is not the reality. This, we call it the war on drugs or, or our problem with drugs, the social issue, the social problem, the political problem associated with it. But, uh, the truth of the matter is that it's something that we all deal with and, uh, we really need to start talking about it like families do, you know, we need to, we need to open, open the books, if you will. And, and, break down the social constructions that we've built. Um, Beth can speak to that a lot better um, than I can uh, just because of her field. Um, But in my own family, uh, I've had a family member that uh, overdosed uh, from drugs, Pleasant Jones. I'm going to name him because he was a wonderful human being. I miss him. And I wish it hadn't happened. And I wish that the situation had been different at the scene when the overdose occurred. And we can't do anything about it and we can't change it. And so, going back to the reason we brought you onto the program, we want to make sure that everybody is paying attention to the people that are around them and their family members and their loved ones and their friends. So in Amarillo, do you want to chime in, Beth? You go. Okay, in Amarillo and the greater Amarillo area, I've got some data here uh, from the Texas Health and Human Services. The Texas Department of State and Health health, uh, Services numbers say that Randall County ranks number two Um, in terms of uh, all any opioid-related emergency department visits. Can we talk about that?
2: Sure. Um, It's a great number. Uh, Some of it comes from rural settings. Uh, Some of it comes from the city of Amarillo. Randall County encompasses probably 90% of Amarillo. And so you're going to get the numbers because more population, you're going to get a a bigger number. Uh, And one of the things is uh, this fentanyl is, or this, these opioids are very, very uh, easily obtained, especially the illicit stuff. And that's where you see it. If you have a lot of kids, you've got, or people who have uh, used opioids for pain control, which there are a large number, uh, you're going to see that, and it's no, of the ones that need it, it's no fault of their own. They're trying to cover up a pain, and I understand that. I've got a wife who has a horrible back, and there's times she is great and doesn't take anything, and then there's times uh, she wears pain patches, and it's a, it's a stout opioid, and it makes her be able to function. It doesn't
0: knock her out so you know that it's actually covering up the pain. And, and I think it's really important for us to be able to separate the, the, chronic, yeah. the chronic pain from, from the acute pain that can lead to when sure. people lose the lose immediate. yeah
1: Right, and I'm, I'm willing to, I'm going to venture out there and guess that sure. most of the time when we do see the overdose and everything, it's not necessarily from people who are um, managing their chronic pain as it is people abusing the drug.
2: We still see quite a bit of the people who have the chronic pain. They hurt. Uh, I've run some calls in the city uh, where a family member had passed away. We got there and it was opioids. Uh, matter of fact, uh, one of the family members opened a cabinet for us, and there was so many opioids that this lady could have probably um, started at her own little pharmacy.
1: You
2: <laughs> know, and that's a lot of people, especially the chronic pain people, they used to shop for doctors. And it's no fault of the doctors because we didn't have any process in place to check to see who had scripts out. And and you
1: know what's funny is I didn't know that before. I just figured that if you had something, this doctor would talk to this doctor. But when we talked to um, For Price, he was telling us that that's like a new step that they're trying to do is make sure the doctors are talking to each other. Which seems like a very logical and it should have been done in the first place kind of step. And the pharmacies,
0: and the pharmacies are talking to each other, yeah. Yeah. Well, that, you know, that
2: came about in 2017, I think, is when they started putting together uh, the bill and passed it, where they moved this opioid stuff out from underneath the Texas Department of Public Safety, which they had always had it, and they put it under the Texas Pharmacy Board. Guess what? Now the pharmacy board can, they've got the teeth to, enforce it with all the pharmacies and then now they're they put in uh, some provider restrictions if I'm going to write you a script for opioids or uh, some potent uh, pain medication I have to find out and put it out there and there's a there's a list out there that the doctors will pull up and they see if your name's on there and if it is you won't get it It's been that way uh, and you'd be surprised I mean this the hoops they have to jump through I've watched. Uh, when my wife goes to the doctor she goes to the pain clinic and they look at when she had her pain meds the last time how often she takes them and it's uh it, you'd be surprised i mean it's they've got a lot better control over it you know i know a lot of people are not happy with it but if we can stop that end of the of the problem that's half the battle Right. And then, then we got to look at the illicit stuff because that's going to be the the big thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so I have a question for you again. Do you, um, when you come onto a scene on an overdose, because as a firefighter you are the first responder, which most people like, you get there first usually. Sure. Um, are you able to tell the difference between somebody who accidentally overdosed versus on purpose overdosed?
2: Sometimes the, the situations will will show you. Uh if they've had pain medicine and they thought, you know, or they forgot. Uh, a lot of times you'll see uh older patients. They think they took medicine, they did, they forgot it, and then they go back and take another one and then they're you know, they're out. You see that. Uh and you can usually tell a difference. The ones where they've just decided to load up, yeah. You know, uh you can tell a huge difference. And two the the medications that they're taking and uh a lot of times when we go into overdoses, I'll, uh, if we've got enough people to do hands, I'm going to f- find out how many pills they were prescribed, figure out the date they got it, and see how many pills we've got left to see how much they've taken or how much mi- are they taking more than they should per day. And that's, that kind of that'll let us know, you know if this is an intentional or an accidental. Uh, the majority of the accidentals are either going to be kids getting a hold of them or the older people. Uh, they've got pretty much the pain. A lot of the pain doctors are using some different things to help uh, chronic back pain, chronic neck pain, stuff like that. So hopefully, you know, alleviate that end of it.
0: So when you uh, when you get to a scene and you know that it's an it's an overdose, um, I, I remember being. I just remember the the radio. Uh, whenever I was volunteering with the department, I remember the radio would say would kind of indicate what kind of a call it was yep. and it would, and then, you know, I would get to the station and everybody was gone already, <laughs> uh, uh, which was totally normal. But, uh, when you get to the scene, uh, what, what are the steps that you go through, uh, to, is there, I mean, is there a, a, a system that you use? There is, um, one, and
2: uh, you hate to kind of, uh, I don't know what how I'm going to call this. You're going to look at where you're responding to. And if you've been there before, you'll have a better idea. You know, I don't like to just say this is a bad area. If I've been to this house five times on overdose, bet money there's probably going to be an overdose. Uh, if it's a different address in that area, I'm going to treat it. I'm going to walk in and kind of look and see what's taking place, listen to the family member, listen to the patient, and keep your eyes open. Uh, a lot of times patients that overdose, they'll still be paraphernalia, you know, out there. Uh, on the heroin deal, I used to, I could walk into one of the houses that we ran a lot of patients out of, and they still have needles hanging in your arms. Mm-hmm. So uh, with the pills, it's a little different. I mean, you start, you still got to search, but if they say they were taking this or this, or they're acting that way, uh, we try, we, if they're still awake, we're probably not going to do the Narcan. And, you know, transport them, and now if they're out and they're not breathing well, yeah, we'll do the Narcan and see if we get a response. Um, we don't do the, the Narcan IV at the fire department because we don't have any advanced level providers or we're not that licensed. Uh, we give it nasally, which is real good because it works just as well. It takes a little longer to re- react, uh, but it makes a huge difference.
0: Mm-hmm. So our age group differentials here uh, with with the different emergency department uh, visits, uh, 0 to 17, ages 0 to 17, uh, 526. Uh, 18 to 44, we jumped to almost 4,000. Yep. 45 to 64, we are at about 3,000. 65 to 74, we're at about 1,000. And then 75 and older, we're at about six hundred fourteen obviously we want to focus on you know the, the age groups that are dealing with this the, the most it's not surprising to me anyway uh that 18 to 44 uh when individuals may be experimenting a lot more uh that that number is at uh almost 4000 uh can we talk a little bit about um uh if you don't mind uh some of the some of some of that if you could speak to what some of the things that you've seen in your 34 years of work in the streets and work and, uh share some experiences uh with this uh, the age group of 18 to 44
2: you know there's a that's the time they do experiment and you got to kind of look at uh what takes place uh there's some places that you know drugs are bad that's what you're taught you know and sometimes you get to a party and somebody offers you something and you're thinking well I can take it once it won't hurt me and I don't know, I can't count on my fingers and toes a number of times. The first overdose was when I, they, somebody would take it and they would get sick, and so they were going to need to take them home or they got them out of the car and then they were out and then they'd call us. You know, we made a difference. We, you know, the, a good number of them uh, were real positive outcomes. A few, they lingered way too long and there wasn't anything we could do. Uh, my, you know, I'm going to tell them not to experiment with this stuff, Uh, especially the illicit stuff. One of the things that uh, I was seeing right at the end when I was fixing it off is the people who make medications or the illicit substances, uh, when they make that stuff, they've got little plates, they put them together to make the pills. They don't clean the plates. So you may get fentanyl plus something else. Fentanyl with X and the stuff like that. That's what you see. And, again, when you start working on those overdoses, you may see some uh, – you may treat one thing, and then you see some really wild side effects off of the other medications. You know, uh, some of them are just opposite. You know, heroin's a there, and you may see some of them that are uh, the uppers. And you, yeah, you you, take care of one problem, and you've got another bigger problem. Um. Uh,
1: how often in your experience um have where they people are around they're partying having a good time and then they somebody starts to overdose and if they would have just called sooner it could you could have made a better difference. Sure. I mean it's that's kind of I mean I can understand like where people are doing drugs they don't want to call anybody because they're doing something they're not supposed to be doing. You know,
2: Any time there's been, you know, um an overdose where I've been on uh, and there was a delay. Everybody thought they were going to be in trouble. Yeah, you know, make the call. Don't don't you know don't think about it. The emergency home we're going to sweep in, get the patient, you know, and treat him and take him to the hospital to make sure they're good. Uh, yeah, you may have to talk to the law enforcement. They're going to ask some questions. It doesn't mean you're going to go to jail right off. I mean, unless you've got a whole load of pills on your person and or in your car or stuff like that. Um and, th- and stuff like that happens. I mean mm-hmm. people people freak out and don't stop and think, This is my friend and if I don't make that call, they're gonna die. And I've had that yeah. they've told me that before. Uh, and there was a couple of times we got real close. Mm-hmm. You know, and then there were some times that we you know, it was way past the time.
1: Do people ever just drop people off at the emergency room sure. when they're overdosing?
2: Uh, when the old financing needs was open, there was a couple of houses over there that were drug houses. Oh yeah, drop them off, kick them off in the driveway, and drive off.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, and it's almost like you'd rather them do that than not call at all or sure, wait too long.
2: They're going to get the care they need. Right. That's you know, no, you know, I, if you're going to have friends like that, you know, I, I'd rather you go find some different friends. But <laughs> oh, yeah. but at Absolutely. least you get some. At least they got you a little help. Right.
0: To Doing the right thing. Uh, we, I don't want to bring Frozen 2 into this, but <laughs> it doesn't belong in this conversation. It's very, very foreign. However, there is a, uh, a great song from Frozen 2, and there's a lot of argument about whether or not Frozen 1 was better than Frozen 2, 2, 2. I haven't seen it yet. I think Frozen 2 is better. Okay. Anyway. All right. So one of the songs, though, in it is when you don't know what to do, do the next right thing. Sure. And uh, I love that. Uh, that's such a great, a great message to give to not, not I mean to everyone, not just to young people, not just to uh, teenagers, but everybody. If you don't know what to do, when you don't know what okay. to do, uh, do the next right thing. I never thought I'd be quoting Frozen two. That's all right uh, <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> if it works, it works. You know, <laughs> yeah. if, it, if it
2: helps somebody, that's the big thing. You know, we just don't we don't need to think about ourselves. Somebody else is in trouble, and we got to get them help. Mm-hmm.
1: So did you, because you have worked in the streets and helping out people for so long, was there a change or were you seeing about the same? Was it um, very consistent or were you seeing something like, oh my gosh, like this is happening now and you've had to totally switch the way you looked at what you were doing?
2: You know, uh, when I hit the streets back in 86, I ran, uh, we ran a few overdoses until I swapped over to the ALS truck and then uh, some of the things I was looking at uh, on the statewide level, uh, there was about 10,000 deaths per year and we'd had our future, our fair share, you know, in, a, in the few places that we ran, uh, and then it seemed like the more when, and this is going to sound really bad, uh, a couple of the uh, governing bodies of the hospitals started talking about pain control. Oh God, my pa- patient's hurting. So what do we do? We prescribe everything in the whole world, um, and that I think played into part of it. Uh, I know you would, if you didn't take care of your patient the way they thought, they could write on their deal and get it. get back, and you would it wouldn't end up well for you. Uh, and you started seeing more of the opioids. Being prescribed, that was a tough part, you know, because uh, a couple of the overdoses I ran were were nice, nice families, but they just they didn't realize what it would do, right? And that that was a tough part. That's when uh, you step back and you wonder if you're in the right business because this shouldn't happen to a good family, or you know, not that any overdose should happen to anybody. You know, that's the reason I stayed. On the streets for as long as I did, uh, but when that came about, that's when we started seeing the increase, the uptake of overdose calls. Uh, whether it's like say whether it was a, a chronic patient or a patient who just got a little, little they went their neighbor uh, had more than once the neighbor would give them something and it disarmed them.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, that's kind of what we see sometimes is we have the best intentions and we don't necessarily think of the fallout in the end. Like we want people to not have pain, sure. but then we're like, oh, wait, oops. You know, like now we're seeing people not want pain at all, and now there's an issue.
2: And that's what everybody thinks. There's that magic pill that I can give them, and they're not going to hurt. <clears throat> I wished. Yeah. You know, there was, and part, you know, part of it, 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 when we gave out all the meds, it gave uh, the population a sense that they could get what they wanted. And uh, I know multiple times in the back end of a truck, I would have patients ask me for a pain medication that we didn't carry that was a hugely potent,
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, dilaudid. And, I mean, I, my wife's had it once, and she saw stuff walking on the walls, and <laughs> she said she never wanted it again. Uh, and it happened that everybody thinks if they had a stub toe, they wanted something, mm-hmm. you know. And we were talking about the – uh, Aaron and I were talking about the that scale that they developed for the pain scale um, and if you've been around EMS long enough you can tell when somebody's hurting uh, and you need to get them some pain medication and, and then you can tell somebody who's actively a drug seeker you know and I hate to call them that but they're trying to work the system you know and they really didn't get much help from me you know I, I'm like sorry I you know that injury is not needing 10 milligrams of morphine or whatever you want. And so yeah, stub, stubbed, your toe, stubbed your toe. Yeah. That's it. You know, but that's kind of the thing that we've, what I've, what I've seen this when that happened and now they opened the floodgates. Now they got to shut the floodgates and they're trying to figure out how to do it, mm-hmm. you know, and when everybody found out they liked the, the opioids, you know, when our, our, retailers and our prescribers got shut down where are we going to get it the next time
1: mm-hmm.
2: and then that's the reason why you're seeing the the fentanyl and carfentanyl and everything being developed uh,
1: can you tell us a little bit about fentanyl
2: it's a very very uh fully synthetic opioid uh made in the laboratory i mean has the same effect as uh your uh natural or your semi uh pain control uh it works pretty decent. I've had fentanyl before, uh, and it's good stuff. But at the same time, uh, if you like the euphoric feeling, which I don't, I don't want to. I don't like the fact that I'm not in control, mm-hmm. and uh, it gives you that feeling, and I don't like that. You know, maybe it's because of what I've seen. You know, but I like to be in control of my faculties, and if you know, I need to make a decision. I need to make a decision to sit there and drill on myself. Which you know that's pretty much what I did when I had it, mm-hmm. and it was over an injury. Which I said never again. Just give me Tylenol, and I'll I'll bear it out. So, but that's the thing. That's the big thing.
0: Mm-hmm. We were discussing uh, the average. You know, uh, when somebody decides they want to go into into EMT or they want to be a medic or they want to they want to help people. It seems like. We we talked yesterday about the some of the difficulties of dealing with the things that you see. I mean, sure, on a day to day basis, every single day you're hit with it during your shifts, and you know you're going to be hit with it. Kind of preparing for preparing for it. You said the average uh, the average time that people will stay in this business is five years. Sure, before they before people will wash out and say uh, enough's enough, I can't do this anymore. Sure, can we talk about that? The
2: Part of it's um, what you're going to see, how you have to deal with it. Uh, I kind of got out at the good end. Uh, The public eye is not as good as it used to be for anybody who's um, in fire, law enforcement, or EMS because you're perceived as the establishment, even though you're out there to help somebody. Uh, You're the good guy. And that's that weighs a lot on you. Uh, not being able to get help somebody when, you know, when you end up getting there and there's nothing you can do, that makes a huge difference. Uh, and it wears on you, you know. And whether it's a, a real minor call or whether it's a death or, and you run 12-hour uh, shifts and it, it's, it's rough. Uh, back when I started, we did 24-hour shifts. And there was more than once I did 72 hours straight just, to trade off to get some time off to sit back and take a nap and then i'd go back and finish up my my 72 on that tail end of it but you were at least rested and ready to go uh you got to have a good good outlook on life uh you've got to kind of mentally prepare um like i told my my wife and uh when i was before before i got married i my, my my i lived uh close to my folks and they'd watch me. I might stop by and eat breakfast with them before I went in to shift. And I was a totally different person. I swapped roles. My evil twin come out, which I could still smile and still be, you know, good old Bill, but you know, you can you kind of tuck him away to, because he didn't want to want him to see the bad stuff or have to deal with it. And it happens. I mean, and you got to make sure that you take care of yourself. I got to the point where uh, all my days off, uh, I left the city. I turned the pager off. And put my, I had my cell phone with me, but I told them all, whoever needed me, unless it's a lie for death, don't call me. And i ended up going to Palleter Canyon or over you Lake and go fishing uh, just to kind of decompress, you know. I was in there by myself. I didn't take anybody else. And that made a huge difference. You have to do that. You have to take care of yourself uh, or you're no good to anybody else.
1: So at in this job... Do I'm gonna ask this knowing the answer, but do they provide as part of the job help and counseling?
2: They do. You got to go through an EAP. Uh, I went the different route <clears throat> back when I first started. No, we didn't. I mean, you were you're there to suck it up, you know. And I ran enough bad calls and had a few things happen. And I thought. Uh, this isn't good. And so I looked up a counselor here who worked for people who had post traumatic and who had taken care of a couple of their paramedics and a couple of their law enforcement officers. And I went to him, and he did a wonder of world good of me. I mean, he made a huge difference. It gave me about another 10 years on the streets, you know, in my sanity, because that was the huge thing. And I, we still talk.
1: Would you, I mean, would you venture to say that it should be, like, it should be, like, once you go to, like, you have so many calls, or even a couple of days, or maybe even after every shift, that it should be part of just what happens?
2: Well, we, you know, it's, at the ambulance service, it probably wasn't that, you know, it was that way. Fire department, we're pretty good. We do uh, meetings. And nobody, nobody wears rank, nobody everything, and you just talk about what you saw and what you felt and whether it was good or whether it was bad, and that makes a huge difference I mean it gets it off of your uh chest, mm-hmm. and the you know as long as you can make peace with whatever you saw, it's gonna be okay I mean it's still in the back of your head uh there's things that I still have nightmares over mm-hmm. uh that scares the crap out of my life when. I sit up in bed and I look like I've seen a ghost and usually I have seen a ghost. So, right. but, uh, it doesn't happen as often, you know, and it's, and there's nothing wrong with you. If it does happen, don't think that, you know, you're, you're by yourself. You're not, uh, trust me, you know, anybody who's done this job for any length of time.
0: Is there a, is there a, uh, an ac- access to a community forum, where y'all can where, where somebody that might be feeling alone can get you know talk to someone who is who is also a medic or an EMT or a paramedic that can they sure. can talk together
2: around here I'm not for sure I know there's project green and it's a national project uh, because of the number of uh, suicides or firefighters and uh, the ems side's starting to attend those things uh, I've got them on Facebook and if anybody comes up and they sound kind of funny it says Message me, and then I'm going to get you some help from wherever you're at. We'll call and we'll, we'll get you some help.
1: What's it called again?
2: Project Green.
1: Project Green, okay.
2: And it's it's a, we, we have had enough, uh, they were looking at firefighter suicides, but it's mm-hmm. firefighter, and if you look at it now, law enforcement's starting to have a huge rash, uh, and EMS still have a huge rash. You know, you just you've done so much for so long. That after a while you break. Right. I mean, if you haven't taken care of yourself, and especially if you work in a real, real high volume system, uh, mm-hmm. that's a bad thing. Or if you're, uh, we had a medic that worked in a real small town and he knew everybody and ran all the bad stuff. Yeah. So, and he finally just. So
1: that's enough. Yep. Uh, well, I used to work for the Muscular Dystrophy Association for five years and we did fill the boot with the firefighters. In one um, season, we decided to do it in the fire department. And I was talking to you about this earlier and over the, I guess the intercom, you know, they're calling out the dispatches, letting them know what they're doing. And they call the station and all of a sudden you hear, blah, 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 blah. I can't understand what they're saying. <laughs> and so I looked at the, one of the firefighters and I said, what did they say? And he said, they either said OD or OB. And I was like, okay. And he said, so we're coming upon somebody who's overdosing, or someone's having a baby. Yep. And I was, you know, in that moment, it just made me realize, like, you really don't know what you're you're going into. You you know, even if you've been there before, even for twenty four years, every situation could be different. So, can you tell me, like, how like how pressing that really is to you?
2: I I learned early on, I don't listen to dispatch. I get an address. And if I get sign-in symptoms, or, you know, what's going on, I, it's in the back of my mind that it might be this, or if, if it's a pediatric, I kind of start, you know, thinking, okay, what kind of protocols am I going to use for whatever? But I walk in as a, a clean slate, you know, and then I start looking at the scene, and that's going to tell me a huge amount. That's going to be the big thing. Um because uh, you walk into a house and you're like the detective. You've got somebody who's sick or who's down, and you have to make a quick determination of what's going on with the patient, uh, what best way to treat them. And then, you know, as we're getting that ready, they're bringing the cot in and we get them out. and uh, we, I'll just do that cursory sweep, and then uh, whoever my partner was, would look around to see if there's anything else that we could get. And now on the fireside, because I don't ride on the box app, often anymore. I'll look and see if I see something that might be of interest to the medics. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, sometimes I have, sometimes it's just one of those things that happens. So, but that's the, that's kind of how you have to do it. If you always said this is going to be, this is the way it's going to be, it's like, you go nuts. Right. You're going to be wrong. Oh yeah.
0: (laughs) When it comes to, there's a, a, a group of librarians, uh, that, I'm just gonna read a little bit of this article. It's called Help Us Plead the Narcan Administrating Administering Needle Park Librarians. <clears throat> For those of y'all that are wondering why my voice sounds like very white or something it's, I'm, I, I don't know. I I woke up this morning and I had this in my in my throat. So anyway. Uh, it says at first the librarians in McPherson Square called it the heroin meeting. That was three months ago. And people were overdosing on the library lawn or in the bathroom near the reading room where children played nearby. Five miles away, city hall officials were discussing big picture solutions to combating the opioid epidemic that's ravaging the city. But the the staff of the 100-year-old Kensington Library had to figure out what to do day to day. They couldn't wait on talk anymore. It was in those basement meetings that the librarians at McPherson took it upon themselves to learn how to administer the life-saving overdose Reversal drug Narcan, and they are saving lives with it. let stop right there, and we'll post this uh, article from the Philadelphia Inquirer to uh, our Facebook and our uh, Instagram sites for listeners to finish reading if they if they're interested. It's an interesting story because uh, we've got uh, individuals in the community themselves seeing things and taking upon themselves to administer life saving drugs yeah. and. Uh, I'd like just to get your comment on that specifically as it pertains to uh, what do people need to know about administering Narcan?
2: You know, it's it's a pretty benign drug. If you give it and somebody's not suffering an overdose, it's really not going to do anything. Um, the like I say the one thing you need to really think about is if this has been a long term user, you can put them in withdrawal. You know, but if I've got somebody that's breathing two to four times a minute, I think I would rather trust you if I can't wake them up and they can, then whoever's going to show up to take care of them is going to take care of the other part. Do that. I mean, that's at least you're doing something for the patient. Um, I know uh, Amarillo Police. I know Randall County. I'm not, I think Potter does. All of our law enforcement carry Narcan. Our fire department carries it. I think Amarillo, obviously they've got yeah, – on their trucks because I've got some advanced level trucks as well as basic provider trucks uh, and oh yeah it's if you've got it, use it you just make sure you know what to do and watch your patient and uh, if they decide to get a little rowdy, you know, let them go do what they need to do because it will it'll happen but hopefully it will be by the time somebody else gets there and can help uh, help you restrain them or whatever they need to do
1: it's funny that you brought up kensington because that's the area in philadelphia where i was down there speaking um this i don't know about almost a year ago and um this is this we had many uber drivers who said don't go there even the cops have stopped going to kensington area because there's so many people overdosing and they don't even know what to do because it's just it's rampant everywhere um would you do, do? you think it would be a good idea to have um, like people, other people trained on how to administer Narcan, especially in areas that we know that it's you have a high volume or a lot of people that happen to be do overdosing, kind of like this library.
2: If you had, if you had a group of people that wanted to work in that area and make a difference, sure, put them through the training. You know, that way you can buy that patient some time. And that's what we're doing, basically, because uh, we're going to give them a small dose of Narcan and hopefully improve their breathing because a lot of times after it it has a a pretty short half-life, it'll wear off and then that patient will go back, especially uh, with the the newer um, illicit, you know, if it's been, if they've increased the strength of the uh, opioid. Because I've seen it take two or three times of uh, the normal dose of administration to actually get them to where they're going to breathe well again. The carfentanils, some of the nastiest stuff.
1: Right. So, again, Narcan's not just going to save them. So they still need to call 911. Sure.
2: Okay. I mean, the normal heroin overdose, uh, the normal, you know, if it's a normal uh, opioid overdose, yeah. If they're using the potent stuff, call Mm 911. Even still call 911. Even if, you know, there's, if the patient, when the ambulance gets there, if they don't want to go, they can sign a patient refusal form. And, but somebody needs to stay with him after that because they will probably go back down again.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a it's a time saving, it's a well, life saving uh, in terms of it buys time. Sure, that's that's what you know.
2: We you know when we give it in the back of the truck, we wouldn't want to totally wake the patient up because then you don't want to have to fight somebody in the back end of a small cramped ambulance. But you get them to where they're breathing, or you get them to where they would arouse pretty easily and then take them into the hospital and then uh, they do the treatment they needed to do and probably give them a little bit more and finally let them just wake up.
1: It's, it's a, it's a very um, fascinating situation that you put yourself into every day. And I think people, more people need to be thankful for what you do um, instead of worried like, Oh, we're going to get in trouble instead of being like, Oh my gosh, like, you don't know where you're going. You don't know what you're about to step into, but you still do it every day because you want to save lives. And I think that's very admirable. And I think that's really, it's unbelievable because we don't really see that as much anymore. And so I want to say thank you because I'm sure you've saved many lives and families are a lot happier not having to deal with some of the things that other people have to deal with because they have lost loved ones. Sure. So thank you.
0: You're very welcome. Yeah. Same sentiment that I have. Uh, we have, I've commented before, and I'm, I'll say it as many times. If if there was ever a situation where I needed help immediately, and and I was in a situation where somebody needed to call nine one one, I would want somebody like you to show up. Not just because you you're a veteran, you've been doing this for so long, but you can you really do uh, you you know your stuff. But you uh, you you have a you have a good heart. And sure. uh, I don't, I'm not saying I'm not, that's not to disparage anybody else. I I don't <laughs> mean to do that, man. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, uh, I want it to be Bill Heiser. You know, I want it to be a Bill Heiser, you know, somebody like you. So cool. anyway, um, this has been a difficult, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to be straight up, man. This has been a difficult episode to record for, I don't know if you feel that way. You guys either in one of y'all,
1: I think it's been very insightful and I, it's hard because it is a delicate t- subject, but at the same time, I think it's something that needs to be out there.
2: Sure. I mean, it's, you would be surprised at the number of people who are using. Mm-hmm. Uh, how am I going to phrase this? Used to, we knew where our overdoses would be. Now, it's across the board, low income, high income, middle income. It's across the board everywhere. And if we can do something that's going to stop somebody from using it or think about it, I'm all about it.
0: Right? There's a a very famous line from uh, Traffic, the movie Traffic, early in the 2000s. It may have been 2000 that it came out or 1999. Uh, really, very popular movie. I don't remember if it won an Academy Award or anything. It, it should have. I mean, it was <laughs> fantastic. Um and the Drug Czar is played by um uh Michael Michael no I'm not gonna remember. It's terrible <laughs> I recall. Come on. I know I can't. I know Michael I can't. Douglas. It was yes. Yeah, Michael Douglas plays the the Drug Czar. And he is dealing with his daughter uh is Kind of gets consumed by by drugs in in that, and she ends up having to go to a drug dealer's house. It's a terrible situation. He goes, and he's—I mean—he's the guy that answers to the president of the United States, and and he's in charge of the national effort to to stop uh, the, to, to to wage the war on drugs, if sure. you will. And uh, at the end. Uh, toward not to not to just spoil it for everybody, but it's old enough that you should have seen it already. Uh, so he gives this speech though as he's uh talking to the press, and he's got a he's he's got a very well prepared speech, and he's supposed to say all the canned things that you're supposed to say about drugs that we're fighting the good fight and we're winning, and we're we've taken this many drugs off the street, and he. Changes from his script because he's just had this very personal experience where he's had to go into a drug dealer's house and pull his daughter out of there and and save her life. And we have lots of people like that in our community that have are doing things like that every single day. And he says in that speech, uh, they say we're, we're, we're waging a war on drugs, but I don't know how you fight a war on your family. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to leave this episode right there with that, with our community. And... Know the people that are around you. Uh, Be aware. Call for help if somebody needs help. Do the right thing. Please don't sit there and let them die. So listeners, we have 16 more episodes to do this spring lined up for you covering everything from the impeachment trial to mental health to national and international security. We're going to talk about Iran. We're going to be with two of our history professors to to visit about Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald. We also have guests lined up from across the country from the fields of political psychology and international relations to questions regarding sex education. So thank you, Bill, for being with us today.
1: Yes, thank you. So I'm very honored to meet you.
0: Thank you you so much for listening to this episode. We'll be back again soon with another episode. Uh, Thank you, listeners. Talk to you later. Bye.